incentives exist from your state, local, or federal government, right? I mean, they, they already intervene to give you tax breaks or whatever it might be. So it's, it's hard to have a free market solution that's pure. Ooh, that, you, yeah, you, you had some hot sauce in your breakfast burrito this morning, huh? I like it. Spicy. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hi there. How are you? <laughs> what just happened? I, I'm just curious as to how you are, how your family is. You, you refused to give me any pleasantries last week, and so I want to over-pleasant this time. I are just, your feet comfortable? I, I, I'm doing great. I appreciate you asking. It's very kind of you. I love it's your tree. It's a great story. My indoor tree is my favorite. I don't actually care about any of this stuff. Please. I don't. <laughs> How are you, Dougals? Have uh, you been good. to a dollar store recently? No, but we did start. We started talking about it. We started talking about it because uh had a trip to Target, which cost $60. See? That's what I'm talking about. It's It's not right, but it's okay. As Whitney Houston once told me told you personally yes <laughs> <laughs> oh man you know what i'm super excited about though uh i don't i really don't the olympics actually i do I, yeah i am really excited about the olympics <laughs> um I, I so that that was good but that was not what i was talking about i'm excited that from the slums of shaolin the wu-tang clan strikes again you know how I just got to say cash rules everything around me, Diggles. I just got to say true. That's yeah. true. But they're, they're saving, and this is not someone, as far as anything I've heard about this individual, that should have saving. But Martin Screlly, basically, the, they had this one-of-a-kind Wu-Tang album that Martin Screlly, who was the, uh, he was the, I don't know what they called him, pharma bro, whatever. He was the pharmaceutical executive that was basically gouging He's, people. Yeah, pharma um, bro, yeah. Yeah, pharma bro. Uh, he had this one-of-a-kind Wu-Tang album that... They sold for $2.2 million. Like I, I used to play my Enter the 36 Chambers tape, the cassette tape, over and over again in my Pontiac Grand Am until the thing just broke. It went M-E-T-H-O-D. And it's just done. Just done. Um, so, but if I had known, it's kind of like my uh, my NES games. If I know what they could have been worth, man. <laughs> you never would have played them. So... I never, Farmer Bro, I never really followed the story because I, I just, early in uh, the fact finding, uh, he was not worth like taking up any space in my brain. But if memory serves, he was like into a lot of the, he bought a bunch of like rare collectible nonsense. I think there might be other rare albums that he had. Is that true? I didn't get deeper than this. I, I just wanted to drop that, drop that lyric right quick because it seems like he owed, he owed the, the court, I don't know, for legal fees or whatever it was, like he owed the government a couple million dollars and they were like we heard you had this wu-tang album we'll take that instead <laughs> it was biden biden's like oh is that hey is that the first press man i'm really I, into wu-tang and i don't want to be stereotypical but i cannot see biden rocking out i mean the rizza the jizza odb i, I, I think inspect the deck man. i think you can anyway hmm. uh <laughs> moving on shout out all right so anyway shout out to wu-tang um all right the uh, the investing related place that I think would be interesting to start is around incentives. 
Yes, we love incentives on the show. And it's something, incentives are something you bring up uh, all the time, just kind of in general uh, related to financial matters. What I think is interesting that came out this week, and this goes, this is a little bit of a flashback to a story that we talked about a few months ago around Archegos, um, I think is how we decided to pronounce it. The hedge fund that Bill Huang started that just completely collapsed, right? And took part of the market down with it. There was a report that came out this week from a legal firm that was looking into how Credit Suisse in particular um, covered this. Did you, did you happen to read about this? No, I didn't hear much about it. The amazing thing is that Credit Suisse, I think, has been universally criticized for their handling of this in retrospect, right? They have. They ended up losing about $5 billion over this one family office's trades, uh, which is crazy. And they've had a fair amount of executives, especially in their credit department leave, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what this... Uh, the report came out and what it said was effectively at the at the high level, it was y'all done messed up. People were taking unnecessary risks everywhere. So I'm gonna drop a I'm drop a few points from here. I'm not gonna cover the whole story, but I think the points that kind of relate to how do we allow for the incentives to be in place for something like this to happen, I think is fascinating. A little reminder about Archegos. This was uh, Bill Huang who ran a hedge fund in Asia. Uh, Tiger Asia is what he ran. It was a big hedge fund. He ended up settling for uh, with the SEC for insider trading uh, back then, or insider trading allegations, I should say, because it was a settle. And so Hong Kong came out and said, Bill, you cannot trade anymore. Like you can no longer trade here uh, because of all this nonsense. Credit Suisse back then said, you know what? We'll kind of look past that. You know, no big deal. Little, little insider trading here or there, no big deal. As long as you move your assets to New York, we'll cover you. In retrospect, it just sounds stupid, right? No, like, yeah. It, well, this that's like the least of their problems, though. So he moves <laughs> he moves five hundred million dollars to which is where he started over to New York and starts trading with it, right? And so most of it seemed like initially most of what he started doing was trading uh, ADRs, American Depository Receipts, so yeah. Chinese companies listed in the U.S. That's where it started. Um, so he came over five hundred million dollars. Fast forward a few years, I think this was like two thousand nine ish. Around two thousand sixteen, he's got three point nine billion. He's doing a lot of trading with leverage, which we all know is where this whole house of cards falls apart. Yep. So in, in 2017, um, there was a 10% margin call. Uh, margin's the debt, right? When you, you buy yeah. off of debt, you use margin for that. There's a 10% margin call, which means they're saying, you need to give us more cash so that we can continue to stake your, your debt, mm -hmm. right? So we feel comfortable with that risk. And he was like, nah, I'm good. I don't wanna, I don't wanna pay that. And they were like, okay, that sounds fine. Seriously, that's a, yeah. like, that's a thing? Yeah. And so then at some point, he basically gets to, from what it seems, from what I'm reading, he gets to a like a five to one, like debt to um, cash ratio. And it's up to, so he's got like 20% cash, right? The rest in, uh, in margin and negotiates with Credit Suisse to drop his, uh, his like margin rate. Although he's over, he's already over the 10%, but he said, can we actually drop this to 7.5% instead of 10%, right? Or whatever. And, uh, and they said, yeah, sure. That's fine with us. I mean, I just want to jump in a little bit. Like, this just pisses me off. This is why so many banks and, and like Wall Street firms and stuff have such a bad name. Like, this is just blatant. You're just being stupid. There's a, a portfolio review that's happening on his assets, at least yearly, maybe even quarterly, maybe even more frequently than that. And they're just going, oh, the performance has been pretty solid, so we're going to take all these guardrails that are probably uh, pushing the limits anyway. I don't think five to one leverage should happen. I, I mean, I don't invest with any leverage, you know, like it, it just pisses me off. 
That's an aside. Well, if that if that makes you a little perturbed, listen to this. They look at their potential exposure, right? How much are we willing to lose as a firm? Uh, Credit Suisse, right? On this individual. And they had a limit set of $20 million. They missed by just a few bucks. So their potential exposure, they said, was $20 million is what they were cool with. In April 2020, it was more than $200 million. Their actual exposure to the firm was more than $200 million. So you'd think at that point, they're like, okay, we're we're 10x above what we said we were comfortable with. Let's, Let's call this. Nah, bro. By August of last year, it had gotten to $530 million, right? So that's pretty crazy. Then by the time all this stuff like started to unravel a few months ago, it was up to $27 billion in exposure that Credit Suisse had. Right? I, I mean, this is, I mean, yeah, spit on it. Like it, there's no, there's no words to explain how stupid this is. Like, how are you this dumb? You know, spreadsheets and models often make things seem certain that it's just a bunch of worthless numbers on a page, right? I don't, I'd love to see, I actually, I want to love to see their model. Their model's absolute trash. And you can tell that just by the, if you want 20 million of potential losses and you get 10 times that, then you, ha- then your model's wrong. And if you get what, a thousand times that, which is effectively what they got to, like they're not even in the ballpark of where they wanted to be. This is just stupid. Of course people got fired. When you think about things just generally going awry at the macro level, you can start to understand when incentives like this take place, you can start to understand how that happens, right? Especially like stuff like 2008, when you have multiple organizations that are allowing for levels of risk that they themselves have said are not okay. Well, connect then- the dots for me on incentives because are we, is this, did this run uh, because of the Credit Suisse? incentive structure here is that why they kept looking the other way so the the anything i read didn't specifically outline like what the incentive structures were but i have to imagine that the reason like why would you allow for something that where you're only supposed to have 20 million dollars in exposure to get to 27 billion dollars is it because you love bill like i don't think there was an executive at credit suisse that was just like i have so much fun playing golf with him that i will allow my firm to get 27 billion dollars Right, an exposure. It has to be you. Know, you have to be making something off of that. Like I'd imagine, there's a percent of your assets under management or whatever's being traded that they're collecting, or something of that nature that you allow it to go. You go higher and higher. That that that's why I brought it up around incentives. To to bring this back to me, the last time I played golf with Credit Suisse, they sent me like two billion bucks. So that might be. I mean, that might be what's going on. I just, I'm still getting over to to bring this back to me. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's why I brought, that's why I brought it up around incentives because when I was reading this, one I was thinking, it's this is crazy that something like this could happen, and uh, you know we talk about fragility all the time, and you can kind of see how like there's fragility in systems like this. But two, the way in which something like this has to happen must be because people are incentivized in a way that is that that is maybe positive, net positive for the individual in the short term, but uh, cannot be positive for the firm or for the entire system in the long term. It's so funny because I tie a lot back to William Green's book, which richer, wiser, happier. And if you don't know, we had him on the show uh, a few weeks back and I forget which investor he ties us from, but it's, it's actually several. He talked a lot about just staying in the game, like in the personal investment space, but with your firm, man, it's just about staying in the game. A lot of times you're going to compound your money 
the majority, if you're in the lending space, the majority of your loans are not going to go bad. You just have to not lose $5 billion on some stupid nonsense. It's crazy how simple a lot of this stuff is, yet how the incentives and the keeping up with the Joneses piece uh, gets in the way of things. Yeah, it's exactly right. Exactly right. All right. Reach into your fishbowl, my friend. Let's talk about this article you sent my way. We'd rather have an iceberg than a ship. You know, I never, I, as I read it, I never fully connected that title. So I want you to give me a little background here, but there are definitely some interesting takeaways in this one. So this is in a granola shotgun is the, the blog this is in. Uh, and the title, we'd rather have an iceberg than a ship. What were your main takeaways from it? Talks about some of these desolate small towns in middle America and um, the real estate piece of that. And I just really don't understand why the Facebooks and the Googles and um, the Amazons and all the companies that are hot right now and building all sorts of brand new office spaces. I would love to see a tie-in where they just go basically buy a vacant small town in an amazing small town in Mississippi or Kansas or wherever and build a re revitalization piece into their business thing. But that's way off the board, Dougals. Like that's not necessarily what the article's about, but that's what I kept thinking about in terms of the way we desire to just build the next new thing and throw the last thing in the trash. Yeah. And and that is what that is the the core of the article. Um he's talking about he basically goes around um Wisconsin, I think specifically Appleton, Wisconsin, yeah. and was looking at different properties there. And the incentive structure that was provided by I'm just tying this back to the last last uh, conversation incentive structure that that was provided basically by the town i would say and to even the real estate agent he was working with was to buy new lower taxes better schools were all the, the rationale that was given and so he started analyzing all these properties and one of the i'll drop a couple quotes that i actually think also ties into in my mind uh, it reminded me of value investing and a thought process of value investing here um, a bit so stay with me but one yeah. of the quotes he has in there is so here's the big picture all of America's institutions are focused exclusively on churn, crank out new stuff, sell it fast, cash out, and move on to the, to the next project. That, 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 was the, that was the first quote. And when I read that, it reminded me so much of like an undercurrent of a lot of the things that we end up talking about what's happening right now, even when we just discussed, like make the quick buck. Mm -hmm. Who cares about longevity? Make the quick buck. Take out margin, right? All of that. Um, now, the second quote is where I where the value investing piece comes from. He says, I'd love for people to stop pretending otherwise and just be honest about the situation. You get a really good run for a few decades, then things slowly turn to crap as the vinyl siding and synthetic stucco start to peel off. We're going to continue to do this until we simply can't anymore for one reason or another. Then we'll have no choice but to start re-inhabiting the dregs that were left behind. Some places will be more worthy of salvation than others. Shrug. Do, do you see the value investing tie? I mean, kinda. I don't think as strongly as you do. And okay, well, to be fair, but, you're not where I go for my value investing knowledge. <laughs> as I see, yes, as I shouldn't be, as I shouldn't be. Um, but the reason value investing came up here for me is because the paraphrase that I'd give to this is there's this thing that seems like it works, like the quick churn, the quick buck. And sure, like that's gonna, that's gonna look real sexy for a bit. And that seemed like it's going to work for a bit. But then at some point, it's not going to work anymore. And we're going to have to look at actual fundamentals 
and see what what's actually valuable. And some of that stuff that previously we said were dregs, which is where you shop, you yeah. bottom dweller. Yeah. Some of that stuff that exactly. we previously said were dregs actually is going to be valuable and worthy of salvation. And others of it won't yeah. be, but we'll have to go back and look. So I'm going to try and make an analogy. I might take it too far and stick my foot in my mouth. In a lot of cases, so is this, I, I have the pictures up now. Let's, for argument's sake, say it is Appleton. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, so Appleton, um, he has all these pictures in the article. Beautiful, small town. Like, looks like three to five blocks of your classic two to three story middle America town, right? Basically all vacant today. And it's exactly what you alluded to. It's like that community incentivized building new stuff. So he's a bunch of uh, newer residences that are not super exciting, don't have historical really architecture or anything else. Basically your standard boring suburban yep. house. Yep. And then he shows your standard strip malls and your standard boring shipping and warehouse facilities. I mean, you could easily argue that like, the life of the citizens of that community might be less fulfilled as they ran away from that small central uh, location, the three to five blocks where you saw people, you know, get breakfast in the morning and you went to the post office together and everything else. As you run away from that, I think initially it feels better, but long term, I'm actually not even sure that I think the incentives here are broken. And it might be the time to tie this back to your value investing analogy towns like that to actually change the incentives in a way that say we are going back to our city center and we're going to find a way to make that viable because the benefits are more than just economic in my eyes i agree i mean this is where also i think the uh I hate to completely make this leap, but you know we've talked about the role of of government when it comes to like investments and whatnot and sometimes I do think that to your point, it's more than just economics that someone has to say like, this is a town and it's a town made up of people, right? Mm -hmm. And those people have a history, a future and a culture and right. And it's not just economics. And so I, I agree with that. And I, beyond just the, you know, the investing analogy, I, I just kind of agree with that from a human standpoint. Um, but I also can make that analogy to systems in general and saying at some point someone has to step in and say like this, it's. It's more than just what's happening today, but you have to create the incentive structure, right, to, to make that true. Yeah. Now the the flow from inside the heart of a community to the suburbs, and, and it's something that's happened uh, for hundreds and hundreds of yep. years, right? So I'm not claiming that's a unique problem. That there's an easy solution there. I guess the reason I speculated about like the Googles and the Facebooks is, I mean, they'll go to a place and they'll be like, we're hiring. 5,000 people here. And the reason they never redevelop a community like this and make it 50% office spaces, I assume is just because it's more costly. And maybe because some of these small towns don't have the type of talent that they're looking for. It's not the natural pull of a San Francisco or Austin or a Charlotte or a Denver or whatever. I mean, I'll give you one more example. I used to work for a business that had uh, somewhat major operations in Albany, New York. So I got there and, uh, Albany is an interesting town. I mean, it's it's better days are probably behind it at this point, but it's like really walkable. The New York State Capitol is right there. Then they have this thing they built in the 60s called Empire State Plaza. There, There's like parks and so much stuff. And um, I think it's ripe for reinvestment to make that like 
city center community just uh, a truly great place because back i think in the early 1800s and maybe even later it really was like one of the uh kind of most happening spots in that part of the region i just have to assume that it's a lot more expensive for major corporation a to go in and rehabilitate things than it is to find a plot of farmland and build new and build the highway infrastructure and everything else and that's kind of sad but that i guess that just is what it is is there any uh free market solution here that might fill this gap Douglas? as i as i was just my wheels were turning over here even the the phrase free market solution is kind of a falsehood i think because the incentives come from not the free market given how our economy is set up like there there is no true free market in how our economy is set up the incentives exist from your state local or federal government right i mean they they already intervene to give you tax breaks or whatever it might be so it's it's hard to have a free market solution that's pure ooh that you, yeah you you had some hot sauce in your breakfast burrito this morning huh i like it spicy <laughs> I just find I, I just think it's fascinating. It's really like, if the listeners have expertise in terms of people we could bring on the show to talk about this kind of urban development, redevelopment, and a tie to investing, I think that'd be fascinating. Or if there's more stuff we should be reading, uh, please send it our way. Before we we dip into the fishbowl again, to drop one uh, factual point on the the title of that piece, we'd rather have the iceberg than the ship. It comes from a poem called The Imaginary Iceberg, written by Elizabeth Bishop, and it starts off with that line. I think the concept of the of the poem is basically that there's this like shining, glimmering thing that that is sitting in the water that looks so wonderful, and we'd rather we'd rather have that than the ship itself. Although having the iceberg means the end of travel, this beautiful shiny thing that we'd rather have, although it, in the long run it actually takes away the glory of what we wanted in the first place. I think that's what it's about. I'm not a poet and I don't know it. Yeah. I mean, that, that's where it comes you, from. Uh, you get so many extra credit points for knowing that, but then I wanted the actual poem too. So you've kind of failed me today. I, I, mean, I just gave, no, I told just, you what the poem was and go read it yourself, bro. Run without analogy though. That's I love it. And actually that piece that I was missing helps uh, the article be a little more uh, meaningful and, and connect with me even more because it is that, allure to do move to the new thing that in the long term ends up shink, sinking your boat right the town completely dies because everyone moved out it's kind of sad it is it ruined my morning you know what's also sad uh no when you show up to work and everybody's a jerk <laughs> oh man thanks for the softball there so the parent company <laughs> behind yankee candle got a new ceo in the past three years. He spent the first three months walking around and I'll get the guy's name. Raiv Salgram, I'd say. I'm terrible with names, so I apologize for butchering that. But I love this guy. He's my new favorite CEO. He spent the first three months walking around the company talking to people. I also think that can be really great leadership when you show up to a new place and you listen rather than talk. I tend to really respect that. So he spends the first three months listening and he, he basically finds out that the company culture is corrupt or not corrupt, soured. And there's yelling and there's just a lot of jerks in the corporation. The very first thing he does when he rolls out his company strategy is he puts a 
PowerPoint slide in front of, I think it's 30,000 employees that says, oh, I'm going to get the exact wording wrong, but that basically says, like, there's no jerks here. And if you're a jerk, you will be managed out of the organization. Any guesses on what the financial results ended up being, Dougals? Up two into years the right. Later? Up into the right. I mean, like crazy up into the right. This is a company that from Q2 of 2017 through Q2 of 2020 lost money consecutively every quarter. And now they're up like 30% the last two quarters. They're, they're making crazy amounts of money. They, wow. um, It's a big conglomerate. Yankee Candles, they're bread and butter maybe, but they also own like high-end um, pens, like writing utensils, right? And pens? Because, pens, pens. Wow. Because the the jerks policy was so ingrained in the company, the people that made the pen case were kind of afraid to talk to the people that made the actual pen. And they were selling into a European market where the people that made the pen case, see you laughing over there. This is funny, but hopefully it hammers some a point. They, they like decided to get a little fancier. They spent a few more bucks making the pen case. Well, it turns out in Europe, when you sell a fancy pen, you don't display it in the case. So that entire product just blew up. It just went way over budget and it didn't sell anymore because no one actually in that market sold the case. And he said, like, this is, this is our result. Do you see the direct impact on our bottom line of just the fact that we have this organization and people are afraid to talk to each other and people are afraid to collaborate and so this is self-serving on my behalf because i just think that's critically important in business and i don't see enough people uh, i often i shouldn't say often but somewhat frequently i think you see the one superstar sales guy that's kind of a jerk and everyone looks the other way i've never really bought in that that's the right approach and i i like this story where Yankee Candle is kind of showing that that maybe that's not the best path forward. I I love this, and I actually had a uh, I was lucky enough early in my career to have a a boss that taught me that lesson basically. And what it wasn't about jerks specifically, but it was more about how important values are right um, in operations. Because there was someone that was uh, that reported to me, they were very good, the best if not second best at their at their job, and crushed it. But they, what they had as their own personal values didn't align to the, the values of the organization, basically. And it wasn't that they were jerk. It was just one of those things that, that they, their values didn't align. I don't want to go into detail there. Yeah. And when I was talking to my boss about it, um, he was like, it doesn't matter. The toxicity that that creates doesn't allow for the system to function. And the system is more important than the individual in the end, no matter what. And I, I, was, I was happy that I was able to learn that really early on. And it's something I've taken on because I think it's exactly right. Success is a whole lot of small details that get right and they compound, compounding goodwill, going back to William Green, right? The opposite is also true. You can compound small decisions like in Credit Suisse. Well, they, these might've been big decisions, yes. but you can compound all these decisions, yeah. like the decision to let the insider trading allegation person trade, decision number one. Decision number two, well, 20 million, it's going to 30 million probably at some point. That's decision number two. 30 million then becomes two, right? It's just these small yep. decisions start to stack up. And you become the jerky boys. And well, <laughs> dropping, dropping it. I mean, to tag onto that, right? Like whether it's making sure core values aligned or having a jerks policy, whatever happened at Credit Suisse seems like they lost their way and made yeah, one small compromise after another in a way that ultimately ends up into 
something that's catastrophic for the organization and a lot of people within the organization. So that's another ramification you can see is like, you can see maybe a lot of good people with good values negatively impacted by that compromising beliefs. Listen, I don't claim to be uh, perfect or holier than thou or great at any of this, but I try. And I think it's important to try. It is important to try. Although there is no try, only do whatever Yoda said. Oh, I've missed you so much, Dougals. You know, <laughs> right. what else is in the fishbowl? Yeah. Next in the fishbowl, um, let's talk about how brokerages make money. Uh, so Robinhood went public this week. Robinhood yeah. did go public, and it wasn't pretty. Robinhood as this self-proclaimed, right? Like democratizing finance. We are the people. All of us are investors. They sent me this. Um, you probably got it too, I'm sure. This... Yeah. Uh, this email that was like, let's look at our history and it's all shiny and right. There's all this buildup and hype around this organization. And they saved 35% of their shares. I think it was 30 or 35% of their shares for their like retail investors to be able to buy. Then they go public. And so you have this like red carpet, like I'm strutting like Jessica rabbit down this, this red carpet. And then you end up <laughs> slipping at the end is effectively what happens. They go public and just drops like immediately. <laughs> like no one wants it goes down by 11%, like in, in minutes. There was so much buildup over years, I felt like, and all the, like, they, they had so much in their favor, you think. But anyway, I, I mean, I'm, no, let me just provide a alternative opinion there. I, I didn't follow it. I didn't care less. Actually, the email you're talking about, I didn't even get, I, this is an event to me. So it might just been a non-event to a lot of people. Do you disagree that there's so much potential buildup around this thing? Like, there's a lot talking about Robinhood. It's in the news everywhere. I mean, like for nerds like you, sure. A lot of people don't even read the Wall Street Journal. Anyway, all right. When you start, when we start throwing shade, I got to bring up insults are coming your way. Hey, the thing I liked about so sorry, I got us off topic, but this article that talks about how brokerage makes money, which does tie to Robinhood, and and you are one hundred percent correct. I want to take back my previous insult. Robinhood is talked about frequently, and it's thought of the company that is driving the meme stock generation and the company that is putting crypto in front of people's faces that aren't like the Coinbase crowd. That's all very fair. But this article also references the iceberg. So it ties nicely into our conversation 10 minutes ago. That is that is very true. And this is uh, the real story behind commission-free trading. Um, and it's on the, the altruist. It came out, this is a couple years old, um, I think. And it's kind of like, this uh, financial company, the altruist, seems like they're a manifesto of sorts as to like why we exist. The reason, yep. what, I, what I got out of this that I thought was interesting and worth talking about is different than the reason why they wrote it. Because it's kind of a self-serving piece is the way I, I put it. But basically what they break down is that uh, no commissions is often the headline of the, of the, right, of the brokerages, mm -hmm. but commissions actually have little to do with how brokerages end up making money. So even if there weren't no commissions, if you look at the, the top line, bottom line of brokerage firms, commissions are like five or 6%, yep. right, of where they made money. And then the other 95% comes from other sources. So an example they gave was if you have your cash that's sitting in your brokerage account and you might be making 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3%, right on that cash the brokerage itself is able to lend that out for a couple couple points right two percent and so like they're making money from that as one example well, and then they gave some and other let me examples tie in. we can go into um yep so charles swab when 
how how long ago was it that everyone succumbed to competitive pressures and cut commissions? Is that like two or three years back? I think it was late nineteen. Yeah. So what they did, and it was it was spelled out pretty clearly, but not really reported to your mainstream consumer, is uh, they used to pay interest on some of their cash balances, and they basically said we're going free commissions, and then they behind the scenes took away some of the ways that they rewarded clients for like all that money that they can lend out. And so that that spread, they just cut in half and effectively took it to pay the to supplement the commissions that they were not going to receive. I don't I don't even know that it affected their top line revenue really in the grand scheme of things. They just shifted money around. And the the end consumer isn't going to really notice that. They also, if I remember right with some of their robo stuff, increased their cash allocation in some of those models slightly so they could have more money to lend out which also they could pull the spread off of so there's a lot of funny math going on behind the scenes the brokerages are doing just fine yeah exactly Uh, and cover some of the other ways that this breaks down how um uh, how brokerages make money are there's margin interest right um so that spread securities lending so that's basically there's stock that you own and then someone else might short sell. And so then yeah. loaning that out uh, to others. Uh, payment for order flow. And this is often what's brought up around Robinhood. And so that's when when you end up buying a stock. Uh, Robinhood is, I think Citadel is like the biggest order flow company they provide. So so I, I'll say, I want to buy this stock for $2. And I see $2 up there and I go to buy it for $2. And actually it might cost me $2 and 001 cents or something along that, that nature that I end up paying. And to me, it may, like, I might not even notice that that's the case, but when you start adding up volume, you make a, you end up making a good amount of money. That's another one. Yeah, Orderflow are- is a PC name for what a lot of people would call high frequency trading. And yep. I'll give a shout out to Michael Lewis book, Flash Boys, if you want to dive down that rabbit hole. There you go. Account maintenance fees, wire fees, account closing fees. So there, there are a lot of ways that brokers make money is basically what, what this is talking about. Now, the thing that I, when I go to the, the self-serving versus what I take away, I think it's really, really important and actually critical for people to understand all of the different fees because that they're paying yes. because top line is top line. Like when you talk about, uh, you can say, I made 15% last year, right? Making up a number. And that might be your gross amount, right? But if you look at, you were trading so frequently that your taxes, right? End up being high because you weren't thinking about holding for over a year and long-term capital um, or other like other fees, right? You can start paying all these fees and you end up your 15% might actually be 11%, right? Just to make something up. And so it's really important to look at that. I think that that's critical. And so understanding where the money goes, important. However, the point that this article is making was basically you shouldn't do things like hold cash in your account because the company makes money off of that. That is that like that doesn't make any sense to me. It's kind of like if I said you should buy all of your groceries at Walmart because they make the least amount of money off your grocery buying. Right? Uh, so does that, that makes sense. Yeah. What what piqued my interest about this article is simply increased transparency. I'm not fired up about really any of this. So because I don't short stocks or uh, lend on margin. Or, you know, like these brokerage aren't really making any money off me. The order flow stuff, I think, is a complex conversation that we can have. But yeah, it's typically costing you a penny here, a penny there. Like, I think it's really important to know and have transparency around this. 
but I'm not very, I don't really care. Um, is that okay? Is that the right perspective? I don't think your average consumer should really care. The, a person that's following a like prudent, boring, and yeah. yes. what ultimately long-term will likely be more successful than them for them, like investment strategy. I agree. Like this stuff is not, unless you're just with the wrong custodian doing all the wrong things, right? You, you average person shouldn't care. It's, it's the, it's the person that's probably trading more frequently that might be earlier, right. And they're investing and you should think about this stuff and understand what you're getting yourself into. Get that. But I, I understand why you're not fired up about it. I, I really just wanted to split out the purpose of the article from, from uh, the main takeaway. Cause I think the purpose of the article is a bunch of nonsense. You agreed completely agreed. And, uh, there's a critical learning there that is um, in today's media, if you even call it media, in on the internet, like figure out who is writing what for what reason, and then filter through to make sure that you actually gather some facts rather than just see their tilt on things. Can I squeeze in three minutes on an off-topic thing, college football realignment? You're going to, whether or not I say you can. <laughs> Have you followed this at all? No, I haven't. This is perfect. So Texas and Oklahoma are two of the premier college football brands. Let's say they're in the top 10, top 15 in the country. They are leaving the Big 12 conference to go to the SEC where Alabama, LSU, and other football powers live. Is that the tight um, end investing? The SEC? <laughs> there's a tight end investing. Hang okay. tight. Yep. Go so ahead, there's speculation that uh, ESPN is driving this because the more high quality brands you put together, the more it becomes NFL like, which means every game on the schedule uh, gets a higher rating, which means your media dollars are worth more. The, there's a hypothetical that I just want to pick your brain on because consolidation of high powered brands can make some sort of sense, but at some point you have to compromise on what's okay for the greater good. So I'm going to move the analogy from college football, which would be more complex to talk about to the NFL, right? So in the NFL, there's 32 teams, I believe. And there's certainly your top brands like the Dallas Cowboys, maybe the New York Giants, maybe um, the Patriots with all their current success, maybe the Kansas City Chiefs with their current success, maybe like the Green Bay Packers. Theoretically, a, a TV provider could be like, you know what? I don't want the Jacksonville Jaguars to ever show up on a TV set. They don't drive ratings. Like, Theoretically, I don't want. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what <laughs> they say. No. So, but this is this is what I want to talk to you about, and it's not even sports. It's really like business, right? At what point is there? At what point do you consolidate too much? I mean, again, theoretically, this is a stupid and extreme example, but I could just say like the Patriots. The Patriots with Tom Brady three years ago were my number one brand. So my league should just be the Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh, those ratings I get are going to be amazing. I'm just going to have the Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs play every week for 16 weeks. Obviously, that doesn't work, right? Do you follow me here? At what point does the consolidation become counterproductive? And, and the reason I ask that is because that's things that I think uh, college athletics is going to face significantly in the next five years. And I'm worried that they are going to over consolidate and ultimately kill um, many of the brands that, you know, the, the Jacksonville Jaguars are in the NFL for a reason. Give me that reason. So the New England Patriots can beat up on them 
get an easy win and move <laughs> yeah. to the Super Bowl where they there can get go. more ratings. You, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. just yeah. So so, so this 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 is not my like area of or an area of expertise for me. But yeah. here here's what I throw out just conceptually um, to answer your question. I'd imagine in sports you go beyond just who's good or not. Like there's there are certain people that just look at who's good or not, but there there's actual loyalty that exists to a certain extent. Like even in in college, you know, you go to Ohio State, the sorry, the Ohio State University. Yeah, yeah. You go there and you want to see your Buckeyes like win, right? Yeah. Like you're you're rooting for them, or you live in L.A. and you root for the Lakers, right? Who what whatever the case might be, right? There, there's yeah. some sense of loyalty might be too strong of a word, but some sense of like of community uh, of, loyalty. Community. It's all fine. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so I think if everything is concentrated in different places, you're going to see fans change. Like the, the fans will not have it, I think, to a certain extent. But like I, that, that, that's what I think probably breaks this whole thing down is you, you actually that only goes but so far because people are rooting for and looking for and demanding. Well, um, yeah, other so in this, in this example, university like the University of Kansas, who may get left out after all this shuffling, there's a market in Kansas City that has two and a half million people and like people that have followed the school for a hundred years. And there is a rebellion in Europe earlier this year. Um, the top programs from multiple leagues tried to combine a super league. And eventually the fans revolted in a way that said that's not happening because if you over consolidate, it kills interest in the sport because you no longer have a tie. You no longer have an underdog to root for that represents your community. And I guess that's the only point I wanted to make or at least get your thoughts on. We can continue the conversation because this is going to be going on for years, but it seems really short-sighted. And I think the people that truly understand the dynamics over the next 20 years are the ones that are going to start to rebel against that. This It's just not happening yet, but I almost want to tie in one more piece. So there's like smaller, non-dominant athletic schools in the SEC, like uh, Mississippi State, or a Vanderbilt, right? Well, they right now have voted to accept Texas and Oklahoma into their league because it means their big their paycheck gets bigger in the short term, which seems well and great. So the university presidents are over there, I'm sure, you know, having a party for themselves. I think ultimately in 15 years they'll really regret that decision because it's ultimately going to hurt their university brand. And make it so they're almost a second-class citizen within their community. And then in the next round of reconsolidation, they're going to be kicked to the curb completely. And the short-term paycheck that got bigger isn't going to be so great because their long-term paycheck is completely going to disappear. Now, there's some speculation happening on my behalf there, but it's very possible in my eyes. Yeah, it is It is going to be quite interesting. And I, I think that uh, to a certain extent, at the micro level, it also breaks down, not even at the macro. If you think about... Um, even t- let's take the NBA this year. Yeah. The arguably, I'd say, but but it kind of inarguably also, I would say that the the Nets were highly consolidated. I mean, that team had talent coming yeah. out of its its oozy woozies and didn't make it, right? So you can imagine like you throw you throw all these fantastic teams, seemingly fantastic, like the best teams into the SEC, and they all just beat each other up. Like every Sunday now, or not not sorry, every Saturday. Sorry, I went to the Saturday. wrong wrong league. Every Saturday you know, getting hit by 450 pound linemen all the time because because everyone Didn't there you just said 450 pounds. Oh yeah, my four, goodness! Six, sorry, 650 <laughs> pounds. And then you, so then by the time you make it to the, uh, I'm I'm just I'm taking this too far. But by the time you end up <laughs> making it to the championship, you're playing 
you're playing this team of Rudy's that happens to <laughs> like happens to make it there, but they're all they've been getting hit by 45 pound linemen and they're all well rested and you know looking svelte. Anyway, yeah, too far. It, it's too a far. fun topic, and uh, I appreciate you humoring me with it. Uh, that consolidation piece, though, like I love your NBA analogy. Like, who won the NBA title this year? It was the Milwaukee Bucks with one superstar and a bunch of pretty good players. And the point being that the like most glamorous aspect is not always the winning team or uh, winning business approach. Sometimes chemistry and other things that are much more difficult to quantify actually matter and win the day. And I think that's my larger point. Wiser words, words have never been spoken, my friend. Mm, lies, but thank you. <laughs> All right, hit us up on Twitter at Skippy Doogles, uh, Skippy Doogles at Gmail. Doogles, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Always. 